I think that Gabe's death has given me a key to a lot of people who come and talk to me now about mental illness. And my very first sermon for the High Holidays was about Gabe. It was basically opening up my chest to everyone and saying, I might be your rabbi, but I'm like you. I have challenges and issues and things that are real. And you need to know that mental wellness is really an important topic for me. And because of that, thousands of people, and I mean thousands, have come to me to talk about the challenges that otherwise would have been taboo or embarrassing for them. Welcome to Exit Strategy. I'm Stephanie Gary, Executive Vice President of Communal Partnerships at Plaza Jewish Community Chapel in New York City, and I am privileged to welcome to Exit Strategy Rabbi David Seth Kirshner of Temple Emmanuel in Closter, New Jersey. He is past president of both the New York Board of Rabbis and the New Jersey Board of Rabbis, and Rabbi Kirshner is also a national voice when it comes to talking about suicide and mental illness, and the Jewish and broader community's responsibility to remove stigmas surrounding these often hidden realities. His motivation comes from personal experience. In 1996, at age 36, his brother Gabriel died by suicide. So Rabbi Kirshner, Thank you for being a guest on Exit Strategy. I am so grateful for your time, and I thank you for sharing your very personal story. It's a, a delight to be with you, Stephanie, and thank you for having me. It's important to share my story, part of the process of destigmatization, and to let others know they're not alone. So it's important for me to be here and to honor my brother's memory that way. Let's, of course, start with your brother. I want to know about his life, his place in your family, and of course, if you would talk about his death by suicide. Sure. I'm one of four boys. My dad was a rabbi. My parents had three boys within five years, and then they took a large break and then had me. So there was more than 13 years of difference between me and my oldest brother, Gabriel. And we had a very unique and special relationship. He thought he was my third parent. <laughs> you know, most kids bristle at many times, but he right. was also very present for me for many of the important mile markers in my life. But also being 13 years older than I, by the time I was five, he had left for college. He had a tumultuous run at college. And Gabe was an avid, and avid is really an understatement, but just passionate, indefatigable marathoner. He would run seven to 12 miles a day, and it could be a thunderstorm with lightning. He just ran. Wow. And we never quite understood so much of that. We actually learned so much about Gabe's life after he died, which is you know, common in the forensics after someone dies, especially dies of suicide. Mm -hmm. We learned later, and sadly we learned this after he died, that Gabriel had gone to an all-boys yeshiva when he was 13, 14, and 15. He did that because my dad moved around a lot as a rabbi, and he wanted a little stability. And we found out that at the yeshiva, the head of the yeshiva was a monster and a child rapist and molested Gabriel along with hundreds of other boys while he was there. And my parents noticed a significant difference in him and his behavior and outbursts and so many other things that he dealt with after he came back from that time in the yeshiva. Now, this rabbi, I won't even mention him by name, was just the very worst of the worst of humanity. And it's hard to even call him a rabbi. Mm. 
he did unspeakable things to hundreds of people. And we didn't know this till after Gabe died, of course. We had suspicions that maybe something had happened somewhere along the way. But it started to piece together so many of the parts of Gabe's life that we struggled with. We didn't know that Gabriel was addicted to alcohol and was in a recovery program. But we witnessed fits of rage that were unspeakable, where he would break things and yell and be upset. He had trouble with commitment. And he also had trouble expressing physical love. He had very hard time hugging us and kissing us. That just wasn't his style. And we were a pretty tight-knit family. Hmm. It's so easy in hindsight to look back and to say, oh, of course, well, that's why. I remember speaking about it once from the pulpit and a famous analyst who was a member of our synagogue said, oh, I figured it out. I diagnosed it while you were talking. And I said, where were you when he was alive? Exactly. Yes. Not to blame him. In the world of regret, which is a really heavy feeling, you know, it's something I struggle with that had we known, perhaps it could have been something that we addressed and showed incredible empathy and understanding towards, and he'd still be with us today. Gabe continued to struggle, and then he had great strides of success. He was able to marry, he had a beautiful baby girl, and he completed rabbinical school, which was really a good fit for him. He took a pulpit, and then as he took that pulpit, things started to unravel for him. Finished that job abruptly and untimely, and then went to another job, and then things continued to unravel. I was in Israel on July 17th and got a phone call, a phone call that will forever change the path that I took in life. I'm amazed listening to this whole story. Needless to say, I've, I've done some research, but I didn't know that piece of the puzzle in terms of him being at the yeshiva, how difficult that moment must have been when the realization of that came to life. So I'm curious, knowing that, and of course you then became a rabbi, how has his death really informed your personal relationship with spirituality and God? Or has it? You know, I, I don't know if it's changed my relationship with spirituality and God. The first thing it changed was our family. Mm-hmm. We came from a really close-knit family. We're part of a very large family, but this was the first tragedy that happened in the extended family for all of us, and it was a tragedy. Some things happened from our family that, as a result of this, became sacrosanct. None of us hung up the phone with anyone from that time forward or picked up the phone without starting with, I love you. And that was the most important words, and they're never forsaken. Petty arguments were jettisoned. They're gone. We just don't do it. We don't harbor grudges. We make an effort, no matter what's going on, to be at other people's events and activities. We're not missing them because it's a little too much money or not the best time. In a very painful and strange way, Gabe was a glue that really tied us together very tightly and made everything very meaningful and special for us. I'm sad that we couldn't do more of that with him. He died when I was in my second year of rabbinical school, and there were times, especially in my rabbinic career, where I wish I had a brother who was a colleague. I think that Gabe's death has given me a key to a lot of people who come and talk to me now about mental illness. I, I don't know if you knew this, Stephanie, but I'm the rabbi in my congregation going into my 16th year. I know it's crazy. I'm 34. I know. <laughs> I also did four years here for the high holidays before I became the senior rabbi here. I just doing the high holidays. I didn't know that. No. And my very first sermon for the high holidays was about Gabe. It was basically opening up my chest to everyone and saying, I might be your rabbi, but I'm like you. I have challenges and issues and things that are real. And 
you need to know that mental wellness is really an important topic for me. And because of that, thousands of people, and I mean thousands, have come to me to talk about the challenges that otherwise would have been taboo or embarrassing for them. I totally believe it. They struggle with depression. They struggle with OCD. They struggle with suicidal thoughts. They've struggled with addictions. And because of that, it has said to them, like, we can talk. The one thing that I think I'm very good at is being a compass because I'm not trained as a doctor or an analyst. I am trained to help them get the help that they need. So I put them in the directions that they need for people and make sure they get that. That's what Gabe's death has done. It's also made me a very loud and outspoken voice when it comes to issues of abuse in the clergy and in the school, in any type of leadership at camps. We should have a zero, zero tolerance policy for these things. So clearly, Gabriel's death has completely informed your rabbinate, without a doubt. And that's a beautiful testament to him. You know, Stephanie, I say this all the time, you know, I wanted to be known as like, oh, he's the handsome rabbi, or he's the funny (laughs) rabbi, or he's the cooking rabbi, or he's the... You are, you are. Yeah, right, sure. No one wants to be known as like the suicide rabbi, right? (laughs) And somehow or another, I've become like the mental wellness and suicide rabbi because of Gabe. I've slowly championed that cause and wear that hat proudly. There was a time I really ran away from it for a bunch of reasons. Not, it wasn't any source of embarrassment. I just, I just didn't want to deal with it. And now I feel much more of a sense of calling that if it can help people, I, I do that. So it has definitely informed my rabbinate in a major, major way. I love this quote. In the Jewish standard, you said, I think it's a Jewish responsibility to be in front of this. We choose life. Our community has to be prepared. And I think that's just such a beautiful quote. But talk to me a little bit about how we in the community are doing that or how we should be doing it. So one of the issues that I've struggled with in our Jewish community for a long time was that if someone, we have, a, we have an amazing community here in close to New Jersey. And if one of our moms, which is sadly too common, 35 to 50-year-old mom of two or three in our congregation were diagnosed with breast cancer, our synagogue would galvanize like no other. We would have a group of people that would be cooking three meals a day for the kids. We'd have another group of people that would be running carpool so that the kids wouldn't have any gaps in their life and they would make it to soccer practice and that we would be at all activities and we'd be checking on everything going on. But if someone were dealing with OCD or someone were dealing with anxiety or someone dealing with depression, they couldn't get out of bed. Not only do we not talk about it, we kind of run the other way. We don't know what to do. We get stymied. Part of what I want to do is respond to that. And the reason I want to respond to that is indeed based on a Jewish text and based on Jewish values. Every Shabbat, people ask for get well prayers. It's a really sacrosanct time in our service where people come forward and say, will you say a prayer for my loved one? Rabbi, will you mention the loved one? And we say this line, refuah nefesh, refuah God, heal their soul and heal their body. We say soul first. And if someone's soul isn't whole, if someone's body isn't whole, if someone's mind isn't whole, then they can't be them best selves. And as someone who has personally struggled with depression at a time in my life, it's a horrible feeling. And knowing that there are people standing by who can love you and support you and stand in your corner. So Judaism demands this of us. Judaism demands us to be focused on our mental well-being as well as our physical well-being. So we need to even those scales up to help people who are struggling with anxiety, with depression, with all types of mental unwellness, 
and to be that same community that we are when someone is struggling from a brain hemorrhage or from cancer. Judaism demands that of us. Judaism demands that we speak of these issues. Judaism demands that we are fully present for these moments. So do you think that spiritual leaders out there are doing that? Are they leading their flocks in this manner? What I want to remind rabbis of in general is that we are great first responders. We give great triage to mental unwellness. But we are not, unless we are, we are not licensed therapists. We are not physicians. And our goal after we are first responders and do triage is to get people the medical need that they deserve. Can't stand in that way. And we're not equipped to do it. If someone came to my office with chest pains, I know enough to give them an aspirin to chew on and put their feet up while I call 911. But I'm not going to do open heart surgery on them because that's out of my sweet spot. And the same thing needs to happen when people are dealing with mental unwellness. It's too serious an issue. And we should stay a shepherd as they go on their journey. So I do think our colleagues are doing it, but I think that we also have to you know, bear in mind of what our lane is and that staying in that lane is important. Talk a bit about children in terms of how do we talk to them about suicide? When do we introduce that conversation? I think we start talking to our children at a young age about mental wellness. Mm-hmm. I think it's okay to say to them, even at the youngest of age, and definitely ages of 8, 10, 12, 14, that's okay when you don't feel right. You couldn't pay me $10 million to go back to teenage years, especially in today's world and social media, forget it. And then you want to compound social media and going back to teenage years today with COVID? Are you kidding me? And then you want to take that with the trauma of going to school with school shootings and the real life factors that are going on. We are making a toxic brew for our kids for all types of emotional instability. So I think talking to our children and talking to them about ways that they can express their feelings in a non-judgmental way is critical. And to let them be upset, to let them be frustrated, to let them be hurt, to let them feel sad, and to talk to them about those things because they're real. I think suicide is an important conversation to talk about as well. Because the number of youth suicide is growing exponentially, and that scares the daylights out of me. But I always tell kids who are the appropriate age, and I don't know that age. For some kids, it's 12. For some kids, it's 16. I think it depends on the kid, and I trust parents to read that. You know, every kid matures at a different age. But I think if we can, you know, find a way to tell them wherever they are in their place that the notion of suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And to remind them that, yes, this hurts. Yes, this is sad. But I promise it will get better. That matters. A handful of years ago, there was a campaign, and it seemed to have lost traction, but I loved it. It was a fantastic campaign that was really focused on teenagers. It was called It Gets Better. And it focused primarily on young teenagers, 14 to 17, who were struggling with their sexual identity and were afraid to come out. What openly gay people were saying to them is, it gets better. You'll get to a place where you can come out and it's safe. And then they started blossoming this conversation to talk about it gets better with school. It gets better in relationships. It gets easier with your parents. Like, it will get better. It's a yucky time. It's a hard time. And with all these other factors put into it, it's hard. So a lot of patience and tolerance and understanding and empathy, arms wide open, is going to be critical to this 
and to remind kids when it gets yucky, it will get better, and to remind them that we'll be with them through this journey, and to keep an extra eye on them. As someone who has been through this experience, what do you think is the most important step that anybody takes who is facing a loss by suicide? I don't know if there is you know, one universal recipe. I do think making sure that you have an outlet to either cry, scream, talk to, bounce ideas off of, or express is really important. It's where I started my first serious therapy was in the wake of Gabe's death. And having a place you could go to is important. Partners are really good for that. I think parents are good for that. Siblings are good for that. But I also think professionals are good for that because you don't want to feel like you're being a burden to anybody. Most people who are friends will never feel that they're a burden, will never feel that that burden's being put upon them. But for me, I felt I was burdening them. So having that outlet was important. So I think for those who are playing the role of consoler, of listener to the bereaved and the grieving, do it without judgment. I think it's fair to do. Just being there and being compassionate is, is important. And I think realizing that everyone's journey is different. It's going to be a journey. I was actually saying yesterday to a friend that grief is a process. It doesn't go away. We learn to navigate the road, hopefully. We find our way, but it never leaves us. Are there specific support groups that you would recommend? Are there books that would be helpful? You know, Jenna Ashton of ABC News fame wrote a really good book after the suicide of her ex-husband, Rob Ashton. It's called Life After Suicide. And that was a very thoughtful title. Mm. And it basically interviews five to seven people, some of them with some name recognition, talking about their journey and what happens on their journey. And I think that's cathartic for some people. That's number one. There's a Jewish group called No Shame on You which is a beautiful name that is helping people who are struggling with the stigmas of mental illness. And I think it's really well received. I remember when Gabe died, I felt like, you know, I I had to take my cape every morning and tuck it into my top drawer because my parents were just totally devastated. And I was not married. And I was literally shuttling back and forth to Florida. And then when I was living in Israel the next year, back and forth to look after them, I was very worried about their their well-being. And I also was the one who was deputized with packing up Gabe's office and packing up his house and getting his widow off to Michigan and his two-and-a-half-year-old girl and all of those things that went with it. And I remember just being spent. It was one of the first times, like, who's going to take care of the caretaker? Who's looking after me? And not to say that anyone didn't care about me, but I remember being spent. There was one book I read by Rabbi Naomi Levy called To Begin Again. And that book really gave me the help and the embrace I needed. I have, I've quoted her a thousand times on that book and how much it helped me during that time. So those are the books that I would turn to right away to begin. To me, the, those books were the most helpful in this process. Then she also wrote another book called Talking to God, which is a compilation of prayers. And I think finding a place where we can write some of those prayers and thoughts of our own in memory is good. You know, I'm a rabbi. And one of the major platforms I have as a rabbi is I have a bima where I talk. I find out what's important to me and I talk. And that was very cathartic to talk about my brother on my first sermon here as the rabbi. Rabbi David Seth Kirshner, thank you so much for, of course, sharing your heart today and 
and the story of your brother, Gabriel. He certainly lives on in many ways. As you said, it's a Jewish responsibility to be in front of this. And I thank you for guiding us through this conversation. You're really a very special rabbi. Oh, that's very kind, Stephanie. Thank you. And thank you for your friendship and the holy work you're doing. I would just add that if anyone ever feels that they're in a place of need, anyone ever feels alone, you have plenty of people to reach out to, including this rabbi. And hopefully you'll put my Twitter handle on and or Instagram or email and anyone can reach out at any time if they're ever feeling struggle. I can't answer your questions. I can't solve the problems, but I'll be with you in that journey as will many other rabbis and leaders and teachers. You're not alone. For sure. We'll be sure to add that. Thank you. Thank you. As the host of Exit Strategy, I thank you for tuning in to what I hope was an informative and illuminating conversation about this end-of-life issue. I urge you to visit our show notes, and there's an email listed there, so if you have any questions, send them my way. In the meantime, please share this episode with anyone you know who may be interested, and subscribe to Exit Strategy. Wherever you listen to your podcasts each month, we'll renew our conversation with another topic, and I'm really happy you're along for the ride. I'm Stephanie Gary, and this is Exit Strategy. Exit Strategy.